Rise Smile Films, the film review podcast that mixes cinema with fine spirits. Journey with us as we encounter new, old, and even strange films with the occasional dabble into sports and music. Proceed with caution, as these podcasts will feature spoilers and some mature language. This is Matt. And this is Jesse. Today on tap, we have Mad Max Fury Road starring Tom Hardy, Charlize Theron, Nicholas Holt, and Hugh Keysburn. Written by George Miller, Brendan McCarthy, and Nico Lathuris, and directed by George Miller. Welcome back to Rye Smile Films. We're continuing on our The Future Doesn't Look So Bright cast with uh, the 2015 release of Mad Max Fury Road. And we just finished watching it in the in the other room there, but we're not going to be able to... The plan was to do Quiet Place Part 2 next week, and since that's in hiatus, a lot of, along with a lot of other things in the world including hollywood release dates uh so rice smile films probably isn't gonna be able to build film review casks built around new releases for a a decent amount of time but man they might shut down the schools they might shut down the theaters and shut down life and turn off sports but you know one thing that you can do at home you can sure listen to a podcast so darn right (laughs) we're gonna keep the fires burning bright for your entertainment so you don't go insane (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> hell or high water we will be here <laughs> we'll be here <laughs> so yeah um you said yeah maybe we should ration off the whiskey but i say bottoms up so amen <laughs> <Pour us laughs> let's <one>. go <laughs> just real quick in response to last week i thought we had um on our you know flight and nightcap questions especially the nightcap talking about kurt russell and some of his great performances a lot of great output on there and matt do you know which one showed up a lot and you know what it's kind of a fun film to watch but overboard him and goldie Hahn. That's what my wife said she would have put in. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that one's that one showed up a lot. Uh I got a lot of tombstone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, him is a uh not Doc Holiday, but Vlad Earp. In, I'm sure there's in, plenty of Jack Burton too. Yeah, there was a ton of Burton, of course, McCready. Didn't you go as uh, Jack Burton one year for Halloween? Last year. It was last year. You yeah. need to put that on Instagram. Well, when we do <laughs> If we do Big Trouble in Little China, that has to be in the pipe at some point in the in the foreseeable future. For sure, I'll I'll do the episode dressed up as as him. I got the white uh, stained jeans. I got the tank. I even got the wig still. So I'll I'll dress up for that one. That's awesome. Okay, <laughs> look forward to that. So we just yeah we're doing Mad Max Fury Road and what what a film first of all. And we're gonna get right into it, but. This is such an interesting film just from the get-go, the post-apocalyptic, you know, setting. But then the franchise that this thing is kind of set into. Uh was this the like second time you've seen it? I know you, you saw it in the in the theater, yeah. Twice in the theater, but it's been a few years. Okay. And there's even a whole um black and chrome version, like uh like a black and white version of this film, which I've never seen, but I hear it's it's even more incredible. Does but, it come with a can of silver spray paint so that you can do your mouth before you sit down to watch it? I mean if it didn't, I'd be kind of disappointed. <laughs> so let's go ahead and get right to our flight. My name is Max. My world is fire and blood. (laughs) That's really good. (laughs) I'm always good for the voices. But yeah, let's talk about our flight question, being that this is the fourth film in the Mad Max uh, franchise. By the time your franchise gets to entry number four, 
you're either in decent momentum or you're in really you're in desperation mode. So a twofold question this week, what's the best and worst fourth entry in a franchise? Which one do you want to do first? Let's do uh, worst. Oh boy, worst. Um <laughs> oh, hey, we didn't even cheers. Let's cheers. Yeah, cheers to that. We might both share the same worst on this. Okay. It's actually a film we've covered on the podcast before. Ooh. It's Batman and Robin, isn't it? <laughs> it's pretty bad. Yeah. Uh, I'm I'm not gonna get into why. <laughs> Go listen to the episode that, to find out why. That movie's balls. Um yeah. It's great feet. <laughs> that's my myth that's maybe an insult to that drink that we cooked up but yeah yeah that movie's just bad yeah no more on that okay beat me what do you got <laughs> yeah that's 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 interesting i don't know if i have you beat because i think at times this film can be watchable and is pretty decent but i think more so from the disappointment angle this one just kind of really hits me like at my core and it's indiana jones and the kingdom of the crystal yeah, skull it's up there like it's it's hard for me to call that like a terrible terrible film like Manos the Hands of Fate like it's not okay, like it's not right. like it's not like that but I think the anticipation of a fourth indie film it was high and then in the film you kind of see Harrison's age kind of catch up to him and for whatever reason they're flirting around with a fifth film for God knows why with Steven Spielberg not he's stepping down from the director's chair but Harrison's still on board and he's pushing like 76 77 the plot was just you went from the Ark of the Covenant to the Shankara Stones to the Holy Grail to like this crystal skull and this alien plot with the Russians and the nuking of the fridge and the swinging with the monk. There's just so much in there that you could just be like, gosh, like everyone looks like they're not having a good time making that film. It, it kind of seems like a chore for everybody involved. Maybe the quest in that film could be for Shia LaBeouf's sanity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because that dude's bat poop <laughs> don't give me peanut butter falcon rye nation i don't want to hear that either that guy's gone yeah he's got some issues that's for sure <laughs> yeah I, I just remember being pretty disappointed and, I, and if i remember correctly we went and saw that film at midnight i ran into you. i didn't even know you were there yeah you did i ran into you in the lobby of the theater afterwards and you walked up to me and you were talking with like my friends and you're like that movie was kind of bullshit <laughs> it was because it kind of was yeah. so yeah, that's that's got to be maybe more disappointing than like the worst. Batman and Robin's by far a, a worse film. So let me ask you a question: with the franchisability of slasher horror specifically mm -hmm. between Nightmare Halloween and Friday the Thirteenth, mm -hmm. just you, I'm just want to know you. Okay, rank those in order of best to worst and fourth entries. Nightmare. No, 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 no. Yeah. So the best entry is actually going to be Friday the 13th, part four, the final chapter. Agreed. That's actually, I think, the best film in that franchise. Yep. Then I think I go Halloween 4, and that was the reboot with little Jamie Lloyd um, 10 years later. And then Dream Master. And then Dream Master. I think that's why I'd go to. You know who directed Dream Master? Rennie oh. Harlan. Really? Yeah. Wow. And it has a very Rennie Harlan feel to it. Whatever that means. <laughs> yeah, you're right. It does. Yeah. So, yeah, that's that's the order I would go in. Grand, uh, yeah. So now for best entry, I actually flirted with Friday Part 4 for a little bit because it is, they went from jokey 3D nonsense in, in the third one to like a very serious Jason and the kills are pretty amazing, but I didn't pick that one. Why don't you go ahead and go first? 
had three that I kicked the tires on. Uh, the first one was Born Legacy. Mm. I think that franchise is in real trouble now. Maybe, hopefully, dead. Yeah, and and so justly so. Was Jason Bourne was terrible, terrible. Yeah, and Kurt, to you, we know you're out there, and we appreciate it. But brother, that movie was not good. That movie was hot mess. So that would be the bad version. But I think Born Legacy is kind of wildly underrated. I'm, but that's not my choice. Well, that movie's pretty good. Yeah. My second choice okay. was Conquest of Planet of the Apes, mostly because oh. Roddy McDowell's final parting words in that film are so chilling. Mm-hmm. That little ending monologue, mm-hmm. very close second. Um, but this one might surprise you. Okay. And I think this might be my favorite installment of the entire franchise. Okay. It's Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. Okay. I think that's a terrific film. Yeah, but the. The Triwizard Tournament. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not afraid to admit that I'm a fan of that series. I think it's very entertaining. And for the it, for the most part, pretty well done. Pretty solid. It's hard to find a real bad entry in there. You, and I'm not one to, you know, adhere to wizards and, you know, I mean, there's questions. You, why don't, are all you, the, you, all, don't, you don't bow at the altar of wizards? I don't. <laughs> How all these wizards in the entire world can't fend off one guy. But that's another story for concept i guess i like that film a lot Mm -hmm. so i guess that's my winner not by a lot you know what's cool about that that book and that film is the the, that final kind of confrontation in the the cemetery between the birth of the rebirth of voldemort and um you know him and harry dueling that's like Mm -hmm. literally the middle there's like one half of the entire harry potter saga and then after that is the next half it's the reaction to that event well said so yeah that's a pretty pivotal moment for that film part of the things i think in a fourth film installment is what world you've created Mm -hmm. and how familiar you've made your audience with that world through various set pieces or characters and certainly in harry potter we've designed a very unique and familiar and original-looking world. Definitely. I think the movie we watched today also presented that. I can't wait to talk about that. We'll get into that. Mm -hmm. So that's one um, big, big part of the success of franchises for me. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, there you go. I'm going to go with Goblet of Fire. Excellent. Okay, I'm dying to hear yours. I'm going to go with an entry that, honestly, I thought the franchise was in trouble after the second film, and for whatever reason, like... They find a way to make each subsequent entry more entertaining and like really pushing the envelope. But I think the best fourth entry that I could pick from was Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. Mission Impossible one's a pretty that's Brian De Palma. It's a pretty by the books, you know, spy thriller. And then they went John Woo action for the second, and that's kind of a terrible film. Yes. And then they got J.J. Abrams on board for film three, and that's actually my favorite in the series with Philip Seymour Hoffman as the bad guy. And then from that point forward, and part four is directed by Brad Bird, who directed the Incredibles films, which this was his first live-action film. But for a franchise that really pushes the envelope, well, you got a, a psycho man willing to do anything and everything for the shot that pushes the envelope with the stunt work. And they find a way to like make those stories because then they had Ghost Protocol and then Rogue Nation and the last one, Fallout, which I thought was probably even better than all the other entries. Yeah. So I got to go with that one. It's, it's surprising to me that they, they decided to like really kick up the game with a franchise that I thought was kind of dead at that point. By the time that, that was 2011 when that came out. I thought that was on life support too after John Woo finished mm-hmm. with it. Um, but 
if that was to be another entry in the series, I'd see the next one. Yeah. I like that film a lot too. That's mm -hmm. a good one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cause part three was Oh six. And then part four was 11. There's a six year gap in there between making the films. And now they're kind of like on a, like every two to three year track. Yeah. That's when I got to pick, but I think we both have a, like a very significant honorable mention and it's Rocky four. Like, look, man, <laughs> I purposely didn't pick that because it was just such an obvious choice because we're such Rocky sycophants, mm -hmm. but two, I'm going to raise it to Rocky four. Yeah. You probably should have won. <laughs> But he'll come back in Rocky Five and some other iteration of a list and reclaim his championship status like he always does. You know what my favorite part of Rocky Four is? Is it after Apollo's funeral, and Rocky said, "I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go fight him," and him and his wife have that big blood on the stairs there, and he gets it in his car to that song. There's no easy way out. And he's just driving, and it's like it's a series that does a montage better than any other film franchise. Sure, yeah. And it's like memories of him and Apollo and him and Adrian falling in love and like the Russian in like this darkly lit room, like looking like a monster. It's my favorite part of the movie because it's so cheesy, but like for that franchise, it's not. Agreed. Yeah. The biggest mistake Rocky mistake Rocky four makes is using that stupid hearts on fire song instead of going to fly now. Hearts on fire. Oh strong my. desire. Man. Yeah, that's better than the version in this movie. <laughs> Why did they change that? I don't know. So maybe that's the disqualifier from being the best fourth entry. Okay. Yeah, we got to have some rules here. There you go. I'm surprised you didn't go with, for best entry, The Next Karate Kid with Hillary Swing. Well, who doesn't love that film? <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, those are great entries. Uh, Rye Nation, go ahead and let us hit us up on the social media or the email anyway. To reach us and don't roll out a new hope either because it's chapter four rye nation don't yeah. try to be so cute that's, i've already seen through that that's super low-hanging fruit very yeah that's like the fruit's like just on the ground and you're just picking it up that's right all right but like i think it's happy hour time let's get to our review breakdown of mad max fury road as the world fell each of us in our own way was broken it was hard to know who was more crazy me or everyone else. So I think everyone else. Yeah, literally everyone else. Fury Road opens up with this voiceover by by Max, played by Tom Hardy. And what's interesting about it is uh, the film doesn't try to allude to any of the prior entries. And I think this is actually a strength of the film, not making really references to Thunderdome or the Road Warrior or the titular Mad Max, and we're just kind of getting in late with him. Obviously, he's been the road warrior for years now, and just trying to survive is kind of what he says. My mantle is to survive, which is what all these people are trying to do. But I think the film, George Miller, his screenplay, he keeps this plot, I think, very, very simple, and I think that's a, a definite benefit to the film itself. Yeah. Look, he's going to carve the idea on this film on a tried and, two genre, tried and true genre, which is the Western. As crazy as this sounds, this movie is a Western. And it was funny because when we were watching, mm -hmm. you even echoed my sentiment with a character corollary that I hope you bring up later with maybe the king of all Westerns. Exactly. But this movie is a Western. If you take the canyon sequence and the indigenous inhabitants that don't like you treading on their turf, and you trade the cars for horses and you put, here's the key, 
zero civilization except what the women bring to the savage in order to re-civilize mankind. And I don't mean that as gender. I mean as as humankind. Mm-hmm. Like you are playing on the basic tropes of what builds the Western film. Mm-hmm. So kudos to George Miller and taking <clears throat> I don't know, a, a fairly iconic or iconoclastic genre and building a science fiction story out of it based on Western common tropes. Just change the the look of it. That I think looks unique. Boy, no doubt. I think that that's part of it. So when we get to the Citadel, we have this, I don't want to call it steampunk because that's that's not appropriate. That's more like gas power. Kind of though, yeah. A, you're, a yeah. little bit. It's, it's more rust punk. Everything's really rusty and angular and sharp. And let's just get right to it. I think that the world building that they do here in this citadel, which is, let's just call this the Garden of Eden or Utopia or whatever. It's the it's the only good place to be, apparently. And we got everything from war boys who do all the bidding of the war lord, Immortan Joe, who that actor, he, Hugh Keysburn, was actually in the original Mad Max 30 years prior. Wow. Not playing the same character, but playing someone else. So you have your warlord, you have, you know, your, your plentiful resources from water to, you know, vertical gardening. You are rationing and stockpiling mother's milk. You just essentially have like these these five or six women and their job all day is just to be pumped for with breast milk. And then you have... Eternally, like ca- the cow. Yeah, exactly. And I hate, to, I'm not meaning to be derogatory in that regard. Yeah. But in the Western genre, that's also a huge piece is cattle. Yeah. And that's what they've created. Now, mm-hmm. hopefully we don't eat them, but I don't put it out of the realm of possibility in this mm-hmm. rust punk world you've just described. Exactly. And then you have the what they call the breeders, which is the female. And it almost seems like through natural selection, because everyone else is in really bad shape, but like they've picked the select few that are capable of breeding a superior future race for Morton Joe to take over this, this warlord. And he especially wants a male heir. Sure. Like Godfather. <laughs> ascend his throne. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And then you even said it really good too. So these war boys, they just, they bow at the altar of the wheel. They, they live for the war rig, the war machinery, the war machine. And their lives are essentially to go make these runs to either gas town or bullet farm for the resources. And they barter with, you know, their resources, which is, you know, water or any of their, these greens that they're farming. Like that's all in like the first 15 minutes of the film. What I love about that first 15 minutes is they establish the four fluids that are going to be important and essential for the rest of the film. That's milk, blood, water, and gas. Mm -hmm. And if you want to break each one of those down, each one of them has a staying power for the continuization, continual growth or genesis of a new society. Certainly mothers and mother's milk to feed the young. Mm-hmm. Blood, which is really interesting when you get to the war boys because they're vampiric well, by nature. Why don't you so talk pale. about that? Because that was the one I, I left off. So which they one? essentially find other superior male beings and then designate them universal donors. They tattoo them that. Right. So... Max is captured by the Citadel and mm-hmm. its warboy clan. And he's basically just used as a harvesting element for his blood. Now, the use of the warboys in a very, like I said, vampiric pale state is done really, really well with the main warboy we're going to spend the time with, Knox, mm-hmm. Nicholas Holt. Mm-hmm. And as 
he's about to die. His half-life is almost over. And I love that that's the term that they give mm-hmm. it, his half-life. Mm-hmm. Because there's a scientific element to that. And then there's also half-life in the belief that they're going to be reborn after they die from the halls of Valhalla. I live, I die, I live again. And then what kind of a life are you living anyway? Like half of your life because the other half, which would be the domesticated part is like, there's so many ways you can Mm -hmm. play that metaphor. out. Yeah, that's good. So he's basically just used as a blood bag. That's what they call it. And they just rig him up to an IV and Mm -hmm. they pump the war boys full of his blood. Mm -hmm. And Knox is the one who's benefiting from that for, I don't know, a quarter of the film. Mm -hmm. And He's completely disposable. He hasn't assigned himself to the status of one of the Amorta Joe's minions. So he's just going to be used for the resources that he beholds, which is kind of a common theme in this movie, right? Mm -hmm. Let's just bastardize the land or whatever we have for the resources. These five breeders, this everything is just used for these ravenous Mm -hmm. male desires. Yeah. And when they're done, they just kind of throw it away like it's not even exactly. They're done with it. Disposable, used up. I think. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and I think the desert represents a good environment to do that in because, you know, those people that are on the ground, they're scrounging for you know the water to fill it up and ration that. You would think it's hard to hear. Is it Immorta Joe? Immortal Joe? Immortant? Immortant Joe? Yeah. It's hard to hear exactly what he says because he has that mask on. But Mm -hmm. I love the little water speech that he gives. Mm Such as saying, don't get too comfortable with the water because then you become dependent on it and it mm-hmm. will let you down. Yeah, and you would think yeah, these people might like try and hightail it out of there and find something better. But when you're in a desert and any which direction you go is just sand and sun, yeah, you have to kind of stay. You're kind of reliant on that resources on that resource as awful as it is at times. So in the Western genre, for me, I always look to the town that's being created where you're just getting the first tailor and there's the first church and you're starting to kind of tackle the idea of not sidewalks, but even parking structures where you rig your horse up to this while you go into the saloon. Mm -hmm. We're getting that in the Citadel. And what happens in every Western Mm -hmm. is the stranger shows up to to the town Mm -hmm. to find that it's being under the thumb or being led by some tyrannic jerk mm-hmm. well guess what yeah here we have and this jerk usually wants all the resources to themselves so that they can stay wealthy and fat and happy mm-hmm. and literally fat and happy and wealthy in this film mm-hmm. and he will dispense his benevolence as he sees fit whether it be water or um land or whatever it might be and but we're playing on those same themes just in a really interesting new way and i'm going to raise it to that because I think the Western genre is one that can get pretty tired, and George Miller does a fantastic job of giving us a new version of it. Exactly. I think I cut you off. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no. I was just going to say, too, that, uh, you know, we have that, and then we're introduced to this this other element. And this is interesting, too, because you almost might want to call Imperator Furiosa this her film because she is so central to the plot of getting into the war rig. So the Imperators, in my understanding, and I haven't like read the Mad Max wiki page on like the, the extended universe of what this means, but they're almost like the, like the officers of like two important Joe. And I imagine there being a few of them. Yeah. Good. But yeah, but I think she's risen up to the ranks and like his deputy. Yeah, exactly. Right. There you go. I think we'll have a lot of those going forward. Mm -hmm. 
but she's been tasked with going to Gastown and Bullet Farm to go bring back. We need bullets for ammunition for, you know, you know, tackling on any outside, you know, you know, threats, <laughs> cowboys and Indians type thing. Right. And we're going to go to Gastown because, as you said, gasoline is a very plentiful resource. And so she takes this rig and is going to go there with with some of the war boys in tow. And it's at that moment when she decides that we don't know at this time, but there's an ulterior motive here to kind of disrupt the social order and the hierarchy of how the Citadel is run, which is essentially through the breeders. Without them, you can't continue on the legacy of this once they all pass. So then thus starts the chase. And my favorite part, I think, of this whole film and this whole story is, and maybe they, I think they do explain it in some of the earlier Mad Max films uh, with Mel Gibson, but we get in late with it and I kind of don't care to have told to me what happened to the world and why we're in such a wasteland of gasoline and, you know, bartering with water and bullets and blood and all this. I kind of don't care. You know what I mean? Yes. We get in so late that we know everything's gone to shit and I'm kind of okay with that. Me too. Yeah. And I think that's what I like last week about Escape from New York as well. We get in late with that and we, we're kind of, we're just like, this is the setting, be okay with it. And it, it just kind of gets us in late. And the film we're going to do next week does the same thing. Right. Mm -hmm. How people are dealing with the setting, not how we got to the setting. Mm -hmm. Better story. Mm -hmm. This point in the film when we see Imperator Furiosa traveling in the gas brigade to mm -hmm. Gastown, <clears throat> what struck me is there's a very distinct road it goes from the Citadel to Gastown. And on either side of that road is just savage, wild, untamed civilization. If you take the rig that Furiosa is driving, it looks like an engine mm -hmm. on a train. Yeah, It even has the cattle guard in front of it. Mm -hmm. And the way that that road is carved out in the middle of this wasteland looks like train tracks. Mm -hmm. For me, another common trope in the Western genre is the railroad and the train theft. Mm -hmm. Guess what we get? Let's steal what's on the train. Mm -hmm. Essentially, here we go again. She steals the rig, takes a hard left yeah. to God only the green place, yeah. which we'll get to that in a little while. Mm -hmm. But it's a train robbery. Mm -hmm. And Dude, the, that's good. And and the the rig that she's driving to me looks like the engine of the convoy that's the the rail system. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. And the 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 road is the rail system from point A to point B and in between there's nothing except the elements of the uncivilized that choose to attack you along the way and we get that as well as they venture into new territory those little Godzilla ankylosaurus dinosaur car things show up. <laughs> so awesome. I don't know what that I'm going to look him up in just a minute what the name of that Angerous. is. Angerous. There you go. Yeah. Angerous. Yeah. Good to you, man. I'm the Godzilla guy. Dang, that's great, Jesse. Yeah. Anyway, they show up as like the Native American or Indian element. Mm -hmm. It's and it's so smartly done in a very familiar way. It's so so good. They are not your property. You cannot own a human being. Sooner or later, someone pushes back. Where is she taking them? She didn't take them. They begged her to go. So then we're on the chase. And this is part of the thing because of Morton Joe's war 
Armada is so awesome and so unique. He's going to get all the war boys in tow. We're introduced to, to Nux and he wants to, he knows he's dying. He wants to die in a fit of glory so he can be risen to the steps of Valhalla, which is their heaven, I suppose. And in order to do that, they have to load Max as the blood bag. It's my wheel. I'm driving. You're my Lancer. I just promoted myself. Not today. Today is my day. Look at you. If you can't stand up, you can't do war. He's right, son. I'm not staying here dying soft. Uh, you're already a corpse. I just need a top up. There's no to... time. We take my blood bag. We take my blood bag and strap into the Lancer's perch. It's got a muzzle on it. It's a raging feral. That's right. High octane crazy blood filling me up. This is like the equivalent if I had like a football game to play, but like I'm like like really low on blood. I'm gonna like have a blood bag like 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 stand like there with me on the forty yard line as I catch the pass. Right. <laughs> yeah, and the way they rig them up. The other favorite part of this film for me too is the design of the just well the design of the settings which we've already set up but the design of the vehicles it's just so rudimentary and you and i both have just like a field day with the doof warrior who's this like Mm -hmm. he's on the speaker (laughs) it has i think it has no purpose other than to hype everyone up and he's just playing tunes like nobody's business we said we wished it had been flea that was cast yeah but it's not (laughs) exactly it looks like him can i go back to the sound for just a minute go ahead when Joe walks into the vault, and I mean that, the vault where that woman says, mm-hmm. this was Furiosa's plan the whole time, what you get is an element of a bank-like feel. Mm-hmm. Here's another <clears throat> common trope, the a bank robbery. Bank heist. Bank heist. Mm-hmm. With what I think for Joe is the most important of the resources, water matters and mother's milk matters and Mm-hmm. but it's the desire to have a healthy offspring mm-hmm. from the vault of the bank. Mm-hmm. You have like another common trope in the Western, which is the bank robbery and the getaway vehicle on the rail system. Mm-hmm. If I brought that up, you'd be like, oh yeah, that sounds like a Western. And it is, but it's done in such a futuristic and stylized way mm-hmm. that George Miller puts a spin on that where it doesn't feel like you're watching no, not at all. a Western. And I, I like Western, so, I mean, good for him. I'm doubly happy about that. That's a, it's, such a, it's such a hard genre to do currently. Oh, yes. So if you can find a unique spin on that in a post-apocalyptic wasteland, by all means, the all-power to you because he pulls it off in spades. I would have loved to have been in the set design meetings for this film. Mm. And as George Miller rolls out, look, we have these rigs rolling through the sand, and we need rock and roll and fire. Like, where did he come up with the vision of what this looked like in the future? It is so unique. And there are three colors, right? Mm-hmm. Well, there's four. There's white, mm-hmm. which is what the war boys and the women, the breeders wear. And then everything else is orange, brown, or red. And then and then blue later on. A little bit blue, yeah, with, fair. Like, with the moonlight. And... You better be good with those colors. And here's what he does. The palette of the the film, the celluloid, is such a nice canvas to feature those colors. Mm-hmm. It's aesthetically just gorgeous. Not how you can make brown and orange and red so pretty. Mm-hmm. But it and is rust. Fi- and, well, yeah. yeah. Rust color, yeah. That's why I like what you said, rust punk. It's mm-hmm. so germane to the feel and the 
the aesthetic that he's going for in this film. Hashtag rust punk. Beautiful, man. <laughs> Isn't it? It's a really a beautiful film in, oh, it's, in a it, harsh way, yeah. And, ooh, yeah, that's in a sharp, jagged kind of way. Yeah. It's very gorgeous to look at. There's some great cinematography here. Like, And I just, I just can't imagine... You know what it took to, to pull this all off because the the rest of the film at this point now just becomes a gigantic chase film. Yeah, with you know them just a little ahead each time and having to do battle with the uh, the onslaught of all these you know war boys and war rigs and bullet farmers and you know the bicyclists that they're bartering for 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 gasoline. Mm-hmm. It becomes incredible because then when we get into is the stunt coordination alone grabbing war boys and swinging them onto the rig and then them being on that i was always remember that that saw like caravan that's like shoot shooting like the saw blades mm-hmm. good god it's it's all just choreographed and staged perfectly like i think action can get messy sometimes especially you know you brought up the born films like Sometimes in those films, and it's well done, but Paul Greengrass has that style of shaky cam, and it's really hard to focus on, like your focal point, which is your main characters and your 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 foreground. Miller's kind of doing the same thing, and it it's not shaky. I, I'm just so amazed how still the camera is through this entire film, with the bombardment of action that's taking place. You're able to focus on everything. I think the exact opposite of this is any Transformers movie. Ooh, well said. It's so busy, you can't... It just is a, a, a mass of steel rolling. Mm-hmm. This has the same effect with lots of action happening and you being really tight on it from breaking the fourth wall from the audience's point of view, like tight on looking through there. Mm-hmm. But you can still see what's occurring because even though the camera's shaky, mm-hmm. it stays there long enough to give your mind the visual capabilities and time to process it Mm -hmm. where instead of like, was that a fist or is that his face or is that a gun? Is that a foot? What the hell was that? Talk about the transformers. Mm -hmm. So to George Miller and the directorial expertise in this, that had to have been an arduous process to get that so distinct and recognizable that you can say, Oh my God, that was a blade. That was a fist. You can, you can tell what it is. Yeah. The craziest part about it is that we, I just told you just a few minutes ago, the Mad Max, The Road Warrior, and Beyond Thunderdome, well, fine films in their own right. I don't I never considered that trilogy like overly impressive. You know, the character himself is interesting. But like those films, like to me, they stick out, but like not in like such a unique way. I don't know like what got into him where he was like, I'm pulling out all stops for this one and I'm 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 going all in. Because this one blows those three films out of the water in the first 25 minutes alone. I hadn't even considered this until just now. Maybe this is a possibility. Mm -hmm. How old was he? 68 when he made this? 65, 68. Yeah. Maybe this was, this might be my last go round and I may not get another budget and the ability to do this. As you said earlier, bottoms up. Mm -hmm. Hell be damned. Let's go all in because there is some restraint, as crazy as it sounds, there is some restraint in the first three versions of Mad Max. Mm-hmm. There's none yeah. in this. <clears throat> and so it's not even like give him enough slack to do it. It's like there is no slack. Like, mm-hmm. And if you do that too much, then you give someone too much slack and they hang themselves. Mm-hmm. So there's a restraint element that I think the studio system wants to enforce because they can't just let it go that far. Yeah. Look, man, it's not just the look. It goes down to the stillbirth in that film. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, that's, yeah, let's get to that scene because that's, 
That was difficult. <laughs> so to get everybody up to speed, eventually Mad Max is going to align with the stolen war rig. But there's a lot to talk about in there, so <laughs> let's get to that. Okay, so um, Mad Max is hooked up to the front of Knox's car and is feeding Knox as he's chasing down the stolen rig that is filled with the cargo. Mm-hmm. Not the gold from the vault, but the breeders. Mm-hmm. And the son or daughter from one of the breeders that is about to be born. And okay. we even see that, um, how did we, what was her name? I forget, but we even see her go through labor pain. So like the mm-hmm. movie lets you know this is close to happening. Mm-hmm. Um, chase ensues, lots of cars wrecking, Furiosa gets away. We establish that she's a, a tough, tough, tough woman. But we get to one, uh, one of my favorite moments okay, of the yeah. film, that, that moment they go through the haboob or the dust storm, do you want to call it? When they're inside, my God. I know. <laughs> it's, it's, I've been down on CGI before on the show, and to me this is the perfect marriage of how technology and filmmaking can work together. With They're, they're actually out here in the desert doing these stunts, rigging stuff up, but then when they go on there, you have an obvious CGI background, but they complement each other so well. And when that, when that, you know, war boy VW bug gets taken up into like the twister inside the, the dust storm, it's, it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. And the use of color and lightning, I don't know. It's like, it, it, you'd be hard pressed to find an action film in the two thousands that is able to do what this film does. Oh, yeah. Hard pressed is right. Yeah. Right. Off the top of my head, I don't know if one that does that better. Mm -hmm. And that includes all the Star Wars stuff. Yeah. That woman's name that I was talking about in the character, her name is Splendid. Mm -hmm. And it's Rose Huntington Whitley. We looked her up in the middle and I forgot. I love the names like Toast, Splendid, (laughs) Precious. Yeah. You know, it's kind of strippery, but not Mm -hmm. in a weird way. Yeah. Anyhow. Well, then they get that they are all they're all dusted up. And this is what I what? love. This is, this is it's what a, I love. It's a dust up, Jesse. This is what I love about the film, too, is that we talk about, you know, how many outs do you have? And they can't constantly go in the war rig because of the environment is also a deterrent to them. So they, they have to stop. They're all stopped. They have to wait for the dust to settle. And their thing's like all clogged up. And this is where Max meets the breeders and Furiosa in a really well choreographed action sequence. You're, you're handcuffed to a door to another man. And it's awesome. It's, it's so cool. I love it. Such a germane way to limit his ability. <clears throat> and then she only has one arm too. Mm-hmm. So how are you going to square that with the audience in a way that's a plausible fight scene? Well, it's all of the breeders versus Max mm-hmm. versus Knox to just try and get away. Mm-hmm. And then you know what the deal breaker in that is though? Mm-hmm. What is the deal breaker for him is water. Yep. So we find that the women, this is going to be consistent throughout the film, yeah. are able to provide the nourishment or the resources that this savage, savage, hyper-masculine in the savage Western way needs to be civilized with the bringing of resources in the, in the way of water. Mm-hmm. So he's got him at gunpoint, even though the gun doesn't really work. They don't because it's that. dusted up. Because it's dusted up, mm-hmm. so they just kind of it's like sparks a little bit when mm-hmm. he pulls the trigger on that shotgun. Mm-hmm. But they water him, and he kind of calms down. And then we're on to like round two of that fight. But it is a really fun fight sequence to watch. Yeah, uh, let's talk about Tom Hardy for a second and tell tell the audience, uh, the listening audience, what you were telling me while watching the film. 
I don't want to get into all the blow by blows of this because it's a better read than I can explain, but you all should look into Tom Hardy's life prior to becoming the actor that we know him to be. Like, it is a story of sex and drugs and debauchery and alleys and late nights. And for me to say that I think the stable environment that Hollywood provides is more than the one that he was in is a mouthful because no one thinks that Hollywood is a stable environment. Mm -hmm. It's rife with sex and drugs and debauchery as well, right? Yep. That was in a strange way an out for him. Mm -hmm. I really want everybody to take a look into Tom Hardy's backstory and how he was found and found in so far as not like a biblical way, but mm -hmm. an actor or Hollywood like famous way. Yeah. It's a miracle that Tom Hardy mm -hmm. is on the screen. Yeah. You want to talk about a lost person for a decade, just look into it. A mess. That's an that, absolute mess. That's a great story because it's almost like it helped clean him up. Right. And I think I told you too, he's one of the most fascinating actors, I think, working today. Well, gives him a gravity to his roles because he's been there. And what he's able to emote, and for a good quarter to half of this film, his face is covered up by this like rust mask. Mm -hmm. So he has to emote with just this portion. I'm, I'm pointing up from like my nose up to like my forehead. And he had to do the same thing in The Dark Knight Rises as Bane, in Dunkirk. And then you look at films like Locke. Yeah, Locke, The Revenant. And, you know, say what you will about Venom. I think he's pretty good as Eddie Brock in that character. Okay, I agree. To Tom Hardy. Yeah. Yeah. I think he's a phenomenal actor. And anytime he, he shows up, like, he commands my attention. Man, we could probably total up within, like, 50 words that I think he says in this film. Yeah. Really quiet, but what he does with the eyes, his grunting, his motions, that's as much of a performance as, you know, anyone else can give. It's pretty remarkable. Show it, don't say it. Mm -hmm. And boy and how with him. Exactly. So then we get into an interesting thing here, and he steals the rig. They have to kind of, like, come up in tow, but... Because of the way it's set up, there's kill switches involved. Max can't escape, even though he was willing to leave them behind because he's a very selfish man. And in a wasteland, you almost have to kind of be a little selfish. Mm -hmm. But he needs them now in order to use this vehicle to get out because there are no other ways to get out. And otherwise, you face the wrath of a Morton Joe. And it becomes this kind of kind of fucked up family in a way. Yeah. You have mother and father and the children brother you know or he maybe knocks is like you're like weird like cousin oliver from like the brady bunch yeah but <laughs> they form an interesting dynamic and it's in this second sequence uh this second chase scene when they go through the canyon and now they have the bullet farmers uh on their tail and the pole the pole cats that so might be good. the coolest thing yeah mm -hmm. and a morton joe and his forces as they're about to barter to get through this canyon pass that's owned by i don't know the name of who owns this stake in the land but they're going to offer them gasoline as safe passage so championing the cause of the women and <clears throat> and i wouldn't i don't want to say championing because furios is just as important as he is but mm -hmm. aligning forces with the women and Knox is important to max because he's haunted by the ghosts of the family that he couldn't protect from a prior moment or mm -hmm. prior mm -hmm. years in the film. And they do a good job of showing mm -hmm. the horror of what he went through watching his daughter die and his wife die and mm -hmm. the memories haunting him like over his shoulder. It also creates with him a character trait that is, I want to do this on my own because I don't want to be responsible for anyone else. Because if I screw it up, then I get to carry the burden 
of their deaths, and I'm tired of being that Sherpa. Mm -hmm. There are, as you said earlier, mm -hmm. there are no outs in this wasteland. And Furiosa even says, though, mm -hmm. everything hurts out here. Yep. So to take that and have to square that within yourself and then have, I don't know, five to 10 people responsible on top of that, like carry the responsibility of protecting these five to 10 other people, you kind of can't blame him. And you cannot blame him for just obvious, or you can build it up in the script the way that Miller did too. Mm -hmm. And here's this poor guy that's widowed and babies in death, 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 death. And now he's got to champion the cause of a world that he hates with these breeders that are essentially going to bring back into the world what he couldn't protect to begin with. Man, I get why he doesn't want to align himself with them. Yeah. This is too much. The weight of that's too much. And you know what's the cool part about it? As they have these, again, the, the bicyclists that are like going over like the, oh, the hills, so good. throwing grenades. They work really well together as a unit. Don't they? Yeah. Like reloading load. I got this side. I got the port. You got the starboard. She, she is able to, and especially when they pull the wheel off, because Morton Joe gets involved, they pull the wheel off. They're able to jimmy this like wrench steering wheel like really quickly. And I love that. I love that they're able to, despite these two characters probably really hating each other, but realizing they need each other in this moment, they work really well as a team. It's, it's really well done. <laughs> Joseph Campbell would always talk about the hero's quest insofar as the moment when the hero has to go forward, because if they don't, they become the villain. Mm hmm and as much as there's a reluctance in Max to take on this new quest to get to the green place, mm -hmm. he has to do it because <clears throat> his salvation, which is the water and removing that mask and the bolt cutters to remove him from Holt so that his blood stops getting sapped out of him, is entirely dependent on those women, women, excuse me, championing his cause. Mm -hmm. It's so, so, like, again, you take... The Western, which is a very A, B, C, D genre. And mm -hmm. then you take the Hero's Quest, which is an A, B, C, D sequence. And you build it up in this wild, stylized, visionary, science fiction film set against a backdrop of literally nothing but color. Because there's nothing out there in the wasteland. It's just sand, Jesse, mm -hmm. and the cars. And you get a really brilliant depiction of a man that has to take on this job with these entirely capable comrades, by the way, a nice team. Was that mm -hmm. a fair? Like yeah. I'll take that team any day. Definitely. And there's no way out, even though he doesn't want to do any part of it at its core. And mm -hmm. we're going to see at the end of the film, kind of how that plays out. And I, I hope to God you continue with the stuff. Oh, I'm going to. Okay, good. Yeah, I got that written over there. Good. And I think, you know, a man that's doing his part and then a woman that's willing to risk literally everything. Cause she says a couple of times, he's like, how many times have you done this a couple of times before? And she's like, yeah, a couple of times, but she's never gotten this far. This far. Yeah. So the splendid, uh, Rose Huntington Wheatley in this chase with the Morton Joe falls off the rig I think it's somehow still alive, but like gets run, run over. Yeah. But the baby's like, they got to get the baby out. <sighs> okay, well, so that yeah, I could get to that. Cause that was something else. So there's a moment in the movie when splendid gets knocked off the rig and there's a discussion between the survivors on the war rig that they've stolen to go back and get her. And Max just said, she went under the tire. Mm -hmm. She did. We see it, mm -hmm. but somehow she's, hanging on to some thread of life. And that's important <clears throat> because then the baby inside her is hanging on to some thread of life too. Mm -hmm. We go back to Joe's rig 
and the scientist, like whatever that guy's role is, is listening through some ridiculous stethoscope. And we come (laughs) to find that it's gone really quiet in her stomach. So Splendid has died. Mm -hmm. And Joe says, get that baby out. Mm -hmm. And so I guess with just uh, a knife, nail file, I don't know what. Yeah some metal they found on the side of the road, they just cut her open and pull out the baby Mm -hmm. and it's dead. Mm -hmm. Now the movie doesn't quite show you all of that, but you get the feet of the kid and that's about as far as I really want to go anyway. Yeah. And because here's one of the things, Jesse, we've talked about this, Mm -hmm. a big no, no, two big no, no's in Hollywood. Can't kill puppies. Mm -hmm. Can't kill babies. Yep. And this movie crosses one of the Holy grails of what you can't do. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's not so off-putting that we bail because that's the thing. You can do it, yeah. but you lose your audience because it's, it's so grim. It's how you show it. They do it tactfully enough, again, to George Miller and the mastery mm-hmm. and understanding how far your audience will go to do that in a way that it's not so off-putting that you don't say, man, I'm done with this film. Goodbye. Yeah. I, and I didn't say goodbye three times, mm-hmm. but the baby's dead. I had a baby brother. I had a baby brother. <laughs> so the precious resource is lost. Exactly. Okay, so I guess we're starting all over again. Yeah. And so then the quest, therefore, has to continue because she's gone. I only have four more of these. Right. I got to get them back because this is all we got. Yep. So then we get to uh, nighttime. Again, just very beautifully shot. And they use color correction there to kind of bring in those blue hues because nothing's like really ever that blue. But man, it looks gorgeous. Sure does. And then we get the guy. Uh, you And you love this too. So he's like the bullet farmer warlord. And he he gets blasted with the like the shrapnel of his lamp from a shot by Furiosa, and I love it. They're like shining a flare in his eye, and he's like, "Shine the flare!" They're like, "It's right in front of your face." He's blind, <laughs> blind. So then he blindfolds himself, and then like gets these like two like like Uzi machine guns, and was like, "I am the scales of justice," and he's like going off, and it looks so awesome. You all have seen the picture of justice weighing up the scales mm-hmm. blindfolded. Mm-hmm. Man, it's done. In that same way, completely bastardized with this guy who, instead of having the scales on each arm, has two Uzis that is just unloading. Yeah. That is such a bastardized version of civilization. Mm -hmm. God, it's so well done. Yeah. That image is just like, oh, like loaded. Yeah. Loaded. As they're trying to get the rig out of the mud, literally, like, they have all these obstacles along the way. They're able to get out. They pass on through the night. And then another just another loaded sequence with the crows and like those crow people just like scavenger, like still, I don't like people on stilts that are hunched over when they shouldn't be like, that's creepy. You brought this up last week. I'm just going to throw something to you. Okay. In this film, can you think of a moment where there is not a ticking bomb element that's in play? No, there's right. So there's always conflict knocking at the door. It's Mm -hmm. always chasing you down. Mm -hmm. That's, that's really well done. Yeah. Stakes are higher. Just you elevate the stake. You're just you're just on the like. There's that that idea of like a film has you on the edge of your seat. Well, whether it's last week or this week, especially you're on the edge of your seat the entire time because who's going to catch up to who? White knuckler's fair, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we finally make it to this homestead of wasteland, and this is Furiosa's old home where you know where she was raised and then taken from from this home. And it looks for a moment like they've made it to the green place because we don't quite know what that is. Maybe it's on the precipice of the horizon. And it's when all these, and they're all elderly, these all elderly women are just saying like, well, I'll let them you know, say it best. I can't wait for them to see it. 
See? Say what? Home. The green place. But if you came from the west, you passed it. The crows. That creepy place with all the crows. The soil. We had to get out. We had no water. And the water was filth. It was poisoned. It was sour. And then the crows came. We couldn't grow anything. Where are the others? What others? The many mothers. We're the only ones left. So by nature's wrath of the environment, the the war-torn society, this wasteland, the green place went to shit. And what when that happens in the West, when your land's taken over by things, you have to pack up and go settle somewhere else. So now this utopia that was supposed to be, that's kind of more the Garden of Eden than the Citadel is in my picturing of it. They're at square one now. And do you start over or what do you do? And they have a really horrible plan in place where it's like, we're going to get on the bikes and on this thing, we're just going to go. We can go for 160-ish days west through the salt fields, hoping we find something. Something. Mm-hmm. And then they uh, there's a really important moment in this. Then that's, I think, the first time we see Furiosa and Mad Max come to a collective partnership that's recognized. Mm-hmm. She says, I have one of these bikes. And it's got your name all over it, fully loaded. And you can have it. And he basically says, nah, I'm going to pass. You know, hope is a mistake. If you can't fix what's broken, you'll, uh, you'll go insane. So even in a world like this, to even think that I hope that there's something that we run into... You can't even have those types of thoughts or those ideas because of all the shit we've been through thus far. What makes you think you're going to find some utopia out there? Isn't he telling her, stop hoping and start coping? Yeah. And that's the crux between male and female in the Western genre. Mm -hmm. The hope is I can build a civilization that is suitable for me. Mm -hmm. And this is really important. To raise my young. It can't be so savage that the most sweet and innocent of us, the young, won't be able to survive. Mm -hmm. But in order to do that, you have to still be savage enough to protect me Mm -hmm. or it until I can get the environment to that level. Mm -hmm. So we're seeing that play out in that little bit. And there's some more before that too. Mm -hmm. Where we're seeing both of the sides present their case of let's keep going forward and maybe we'll find civilization 160 days out mm-hmm. where Max is doing, and, and they're both wrong and right. Yeah. They're both wrong in their, in their ability to achieve it, but both attempting to do right in a way that allows that mm. execution to occur. Well said. So he says, no, no, stop, stop hoping. Look, woman, start coping. Mm-hmm. And you get the impasse of the two forces smashing into each other. And basically what ends up happening is we're at a stalemate. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to let you go with the next part because I think this is where we see the partnership really begin. Before that, one thing I had never noticed while watching this is that old woman, I don't know her name, in her bag has like all these like heirloom seeds. Yeah. So she literally has gold in her bag. Yeah. 
whether that's corn or barley or, you know, whatever crop in there that is non-existent elsewhere. Mm -hmm. So they have the seeds to literally start life over again, again. which is fascinating to me. She's viable in this scenario. So they're going off there and Max comes up to them and stops them and says, look, like if you go that way for 160 days, you're going to find nothing but salt. But we know what's at home, where you came from is water that the one thing that's blocking all that is your warlord who's literally just kind of chasing you this whole time if we take the war rig and just go right through the middle of them beat them off at the at the canyon we can stop this end this and you can get home and start life anew here's the plan it's not a great plan but it's better than that plan go back to civilization Mm -hmm. and rescue it from the clutches of your crazy mayor right <laughs> yeah <laughs> or sheriff like your crazy sheriff man right exactly mm-hmm. let's just remove him and then we already have it. and we, here's what's great about that we've already set up that they have the ability to grow there because we've seen their elevated greenhouse yeah. their what did you call it their elevated, they, they call that like vertical farming yeah and they have it so we've already got the structure in place <clears throat> where those seeds can really be used and we can rebirth society in some manner we just have to get to a place with water which is being pumped from the earth Mm -hmm. plenty of sun we got that check that's everywhere but then a mechanism in place to protect it and foster it Mm -hmm. so let's go home let's do it jesus and And i love that it's called the citadel too Mm -hmm. so now we get the final chase this race back to the citadel and again miller just not holding back in the slightest some of the stuff that always sticks out in this sequence to me is when they're trying to stay one up on the the rig with Nux's like partner guy who has Max's like Pontiac at this point, and they're just spitting and squeezing gas into their turbines to make them like go faster. And I, I've, that, that's always stuck out to me. But now they have this kind of little armada on the ship with all these, these elderly women that are great marksmen. Mm-hmm. And it's just they got to survive long enough to get to the canyon. And boy, do they take some damage. And then you get the polecats and that disgusting fat man with his gold piece and his rolly t- feet. <laughs> the pig, right? Come the pig. He's so gross. And yeah, like you got you got to like dispatch of all these enemies and elements and, and to me one of the, the best parts of this and you, you can just totally tell they did it all for real is when max is swinging on the polecat and like one of like the the gas rigs behind them is uh just exploding and he like rises up and it's just this inferno of a fireball and it looks amazing yeah like all like well-timed well-done stunt work really actually doing the driving and all this and then another cool part there they're trying to Told them back. They got these harpoons into the back of their water rig. And then they have these like grates in the back to help slow the momentum of the thing, trying to find ways to slow them down, like real unique ways to, to get them back. So it's guns and technology and spikes and faster, more agile ships attacking the big war rig and an elevated position, which in the art of war, the first thing you can do is find a high, a superior position to your opponent. Those polecats, like these, these scales that mm-hmm. are swinging back and forth that are weighted at the bottom that allow you to tack and then escape mm-hmm. and then attack and then escape. And they're above you. And then these marksmen on there, it, man, it's just this 
plethora of action that is occurring all over the place and this blows up and there's fire and they got to drive through the fire mm -hmm. and Furiosa gets stabbed and Mad Max is hanging out the window and the the engine goes bad mm -hmm. it, like it just never ever ends and it's not to mention it's like 65 to 1 mm -hmm. how in the hell are they going to hold off 65 attackers yeah but they manage to mm -hmm. and then we get some nice moments of what they still value mm. on the car, which are those seeds, like we have to protect them. And there's one particular old woman that is the carrier or the guardian of these seeds, mm -hmm. the heirloom seeds that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. And they give her a very, I think, appropriate and sort of gentle death. Mm -hmm. And you come to realize like, oh man, please don't turn over and whatever happens, don't let those seeds spill out everywhere because then you've lost it. So. Mm -hmm. We've got gasoline, we've got engines failing, we've got spiked little cars. It's just, it it, it never ends. Mm -hmm. But the polecats are the coolest attack mechanism I might have ever seen. You know what shot I love is when it's like pulled back a deep focus and every there the the caravans like all out of focus and you see that war heat rising from the, or like the desert heat rising from the the ground oh yeah and you just see the polecats kind of swinging back oh my god i i live for stuff like that right Whew, like that that's that's good think like metronome effect with the attacker on the top of the metronome and two minutes like two seconds of attack as you're descending and then probably 10 seconds of escape as you are continuing the arc well, they're able to use it to pull some of the women out of the out of the car into into Joe's rig, stealing the women, and yeah, it's. I, and Max has to finally do battle with the Doof Warrior, who's just been jamming like nobody's business, dude. Master of puppets, like the mm -hmm. entire time, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but we get this final confrontation between yeah Furiosa trying to get yeah the, the I think it's Zoe Kravitz. Uh, Who's on Joe's rig there? Toast. Her name is Toast. It really is Toast. Yeah, the names are great. Crazy, I, yeah. I love it. And yeah, and she does one up on him and gets his mask tube stuck with this like spear into the spokes or the wheel turbines of his big rig. And he just rips his face out. Like <laughs> on his own rig. I love it. Oh my God, it's so gruesome. Right. But a fitting death for just such a bastard this entire film. Right. Which, you know, he's doing things like the way he sees it fit to run this like warlord society and it's all backwards and, and whatnot. And yeah, the way he goes out on his rig through his own mechanism that keeps him alive is just, man, that's justice on, on, on such a level right there. We talk about the bad guy that wants to rule over the earth once he's turned it into rubble. He doesn't want that. No, he's trying to, re to resurrect the world mm -hmm. in his own screwed up way. And it's wrong. Mm -hmm. But... The execution sucks, but mm -hmm. the idea is right. Mm -hmm. Yeah? Yeah. So <clears throat> it doesn't make him likable. I'm not saying that. Yeah. But you understand why he's going about the Like, it's important that he has healthy offspring. See, because that's the other thing, too, and the, the baby, the miscarriage part that we talked about. Mm -hmm. Everybody's stating in the non-medical way that they can't tell, but whatever they can tell from the their eyes. Well, just look at the people he's healthy. back at the Citadel. Is they all have physical disability and deformities, whether they're born with uh, you know their legs missing or terrible like cancerous growths emerging on their body. Yeah, I don't think people people aren't very healthy. So the healthy, <laughs> no, the healthy think? the healthy ones are in right. rare supply, and it's those breeders. Mm -hmm. 
Right. Yeah, I think you said earlier. Mm-hmm. So they've been selectively chosen for a purpose. Exactly. Yeah, it's all just. It, what do you? I wanted to ask you. What do you think of a Morton Joe's look? It, like his mask is like these, this like teeth tubes into him, and then he's got this armor plate that's clear, and then he's got like all these like metals on it. Yeah, it's almost like his his uh, shield plate is decorated with the spoils of war, which you know come from violence. Mm-hmm. And then he has that. I don't know what you would call it, that breathing filter apparatus on the yeah. back that mm-hmm. looks like gills. He looks great. Yeah. And as big and kind of burly as he is, you can tell he's also not healthy because there's one point where he's going to address the people below him mm-hmm. and he has to be escorted down a little flight of stairs to the pulpit where he can deliver his message. They're like breathing like dialysis on him. Right, that starts off with one of the young war boys early on, basically has Joe stripped down, and he's breathing some kind of powder on him to, I guess, sate or stifle the pain, the painful sores he has all over his mm-hmm. body. So time's even ticking for him, too. Yeah. But he's dead now. <laughs> he's, well, now it's, time has expired. Yeah. His face has been ripped off. And they finally get to the Canyon Pass, and Nux this whole time has been... He's so conflicted because he wants to die for the cause of Immortan Joe. And then he even has a chance later that we skipped over where he's going to go on the rig with a gun and put a bullet in them. And he he fucks that up and he like trips and loses the gun and Immortan Joe's like, mediocre. Like, like he doesn't have the respect. So he kind of breaks good in this in his own regard. And he still gets what he wants, but on the other side of the coin, which is another great moment because he just totally caves in that whole overpass for them. So Knox realizes that his promise of a better life is martyrdom. Mm-hmm. And he's going to do it at Joe's behest. And Joe promises him that he will even carry him to the steps of Valhalla himself. And that's before that tripping element that you said. <laughs> and Knox is going to still end up in a martyr-like role in this film. Mm-hmm. But it's for the betterment of those who have a cleaner version mm-hmm. of the regenesis Ooh, of good. civilization. Excellent. Right? Because he sacrifices himself. So we get this final moment, or close to a final moment. They're on the rig. They're going back to the Citadel. They got some alleviation for, like, the first time in the film. Yeah, no kidding. And, yeah, Furiosa's, like, in really bad shape. And, you know, Max is able to jimmy up some, like, side-ectomy, like, rig to, like, help bring air into the lungs that are collapsing. And it's at this moment when he decides, I'm going to tell her. To me, Max is always a very closed and personal human because she asked him his name, and he's like, that doesn't matter, like... Because this is nothing. Like, once we get there, I'm toast. Or I'm gone. And it's at this moment where he kind of lets that down a little bit to let let her know the name. When you watch this scene again, I want you, everyone on Bright Nation and the viewers, to watch Tom Hardy's eyes in this scene. Because even though he's telling her, his eyes are doing this interesting kind of blinking thing. And he's kind of looking all over. Because even he feels uncomfortable saying it. Because he, this isn't who what his character trait is to kind of be emotional and and let someone into his life like this. And it's not like they're going to have a big smooch at the end, like the rise of Skywalker. But I think they see themselves kind of as equals at this point. And he's like, "I'm willing to give this part of myself to her," which is just a name. It's just a name. I wondered during this film which of the four fluids was the most important: the milk, the blood, the gas, or the water. Mm-hmm. And I guess this movie lets you know in this moment that it's the blood. Mm-hmm. And the fact that he rigs up an IV with 
the previous IV that had already been used on him by the war boys as the blood bag mm -hmm. to bring Furiosa back mm -hmm. is obviously a reincarnation and a Christ-like element in this, the blood of to resurrect, blah, blah, blah. We can, but done on purpose for certain. Yeah. But then you get to, and I don't mean this to be anything more than what it is, but he is part of her now. Yeah. And he's given her his name. So in a weird way in this desolate place, He's given her his name and his body. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a marriage yeah. and not a romantic marriage, though. I don't no, think not, those two love each a, other. Not at all. But it's it's a nice moment. And you do realize at that point, Max, at his core, despite everything that he's been through, there still resides some element of goodness in him. Humanity. Mm -hmm. He's already given away probably two thirds of his blood to mm -hmm. freaking Knox. Yeah. He's yeah, been, so, somebody get Max some orange juice. Uh, <laughs> exactly. A couple crackers, yep. man. But he's given more of himself now to Furiosa. Oh, that's that's well said. I didn't kind of ever break it down on the, on the, on that kind of level, but that you're you're absolutely right. I love it because his his blood into her births and and we can play the exchange of fluid in whatever way you all out there are listening to this that you want. But the exchange or the giving of his fluid to her is going to rebirth society. Mm -hmm. And she's the bringer of life into society. We're playing on a domestic primal function of male-female relationships. And how George Miller in this wild, visualized, stylized film yeah. somehow wove in the importance of that is just so it's masterful to mm -hmm. me. So they get to the Citadel. They... Give them the corpse of a Morton Joe. The 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 people there just kind of rip it to pieces. I think <laughs> someone do. takes a leg and someone takes a hand. Effigy, right? It's kind of effigy like. Oh, per perfect. And then we kind of finally because like this like ramp, this like rising ramp, like represents kind of like who's able to rise above and then below society. Oh, good, yeah. So they get the oh, that's good. They, yeah they get the rig on there with Max and he pulls out Furiosa. And all the the breeders and everything get on this thing, and it starts to rise. And earlier, when they did this, they were kicking off all these people, and like you're not allowed above this. But this time, they're allowed to get on. And then, okay, now I'll bring in the the Western thing. So I think one of the most masterful westerns ever made is John Ford's The Searchers, and it's a film about a man who's goes on a quest to help bring back Natalie Wood to to her family, and it's kind of like this whole kidnapping film. But the whole time, Ethan Edwards, John Wayne, represents the frontier and the mystery of the West. And even though he has, and even especially in that end, when you think he's going to like kill her <laughs> and kind of gets her into our arms because he still has a moral ob obligation to bring her back to her family, the end of the searchers really echoes to me the end of Mad Max because as Furiosa's rising to start this new world order with the breeders and these people that are now kind of seen as equals and less of society. Max doesn't fit their plan. And as he kind of goes through the crowd, they lock eyes. And and I love it. It's, Tom Hardy's so good at it. He just kind of gives like a little kind of like nod down. And he's not even looking her in the eye. It's just kind of a like, yeah, we did something good. And she kind of gives him a little head nod. He doesn't, much in the way the searchers plays out where John Wayne doesn't go into the precipice of the home and domesticated life because he's the frontier. Yeah. It's the same with Max. Max doesn't represent civilization. He represents the wilderness, the wasteland. Yeah. The Searchers has a, a really nondescript important piece in it, and it's a rocking chair. Mm -hmm. 
the minute you sit down in the rocking chair and relax is the minute you've basically put the final nail in your coffin, according to the rules of the West. Yeah. The Western <clears throat> hero has three rules, right? There's always another version. There's always another adventure out there. Your home is the wilderness. Mm-hmm. And the minute you adhere to a civilized state is the minute you became unnecessary. And then by unnecessary, you don't need to exist anymore. So if he stays in Citadel mm-hmm. and becomes a farmer, <laughs> he's done. Yeah. So I, I guess he's off to Mad Max Five and whatever adventure finds him. And I don't mean screen wise. Like I'm not. I'm not saying we need Mad Max Five. Yeah. But he's off to another adventure because that's that is his home. Mm-hmm. I'm going to live from moment to moment with minimal resources because I am the Western hero. And you described it so well. At the end of the Searchers, John Wayne stands in a doorway, and it's I can go inside that house with my family. That's, become civilized. It's not me. Which means I'm going to die. Mm-hmm. Or I can go back out there and he chooses to go back out into the blistering hot sun from mm-hmm. the warm, cool, dark mm-hmm. of the house in the doorway. He kind of looks. He doesn't even say goodbye. He covers his elbow, his left elbow with his right hand, which is an homage to one of the set hands that had died on that film. Yeah. And off he goes for the next distant yeah. adventure. And it's the same in he this. He said the same thing. In this film, and it's it's so it's so well done. They have a nice moment though before, right? A little nod, mm-hmm. and I think that that, every, like you said earlier, everything that Tom Hardy doesn't say in this movie doesn't need to, because mm-hmm. it's it he doesn't even really like blink or shoot or a wink or smile. He just is very stoically nods at her to like it's a head nod down, and he like looks down at the ground like it's it's interesting. It's very interesting. So much respect between the two of them. Yeah, and then we fade out, and the film's over. Now, can I mention just a couple things that we didn't kind of bring up? Go, man. This film was in development hell for years, as early as 1997. That's crazy. And events like 9-11 and the war in Iraq kind of halted this production. And it was never intended to be with Mel Gibson because we all know what happened there. But <laughs> yeah. I think Tom Hardy's kind of even a, even a better cast as as this character. Primarily because he's so good at at what he emotes with so little dialogue. Uh, he was cast back in June of 2010, and they went into principal photography in uh, uh, July of 2012. The film wrapped that December. The film didn't come out until May of 2015, so there was obvious time to do reshoots. Do you know where they shot it? They shot in parts of Sydney, but also in uh, West Africa, oh, wow. in, in the desert out there. So in the actual uh, terrain out there, mm-hmm. $375 million gross for an R-rated film. That's pretty. That's That's not bad. Uh, nominated for 10 Academy Awards, won six. Yeah. To me, this was a film, and I remember the Oscars that year. This felt like a genre film that was able to kind of sneak into the party of cinema and the Oscar bait films Mm -hmm. when it has every right, I think, to be there in the conversation. I bet you know this. What won that year? Do you know what won Best Picture that year? um, I'll look it up. No, no, no. Spotlight. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Mm -hmm. But yeah, the, and the film was was well liked. It it holds a ninety seven percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, but yeah, before we get into our ratings, let's kind of get right to uh, what we've established last week. Matt, what's your favorite tasting note or your favorite scene of the film? Mm. <laughs> Would you like me to go first? Sure. Okay. It's entering the haboob, the dust storm. It's just a miasma of visuals that is chaotic on the surface but the way it's presented to you is just so well done and it's it's a feast for the eyes 
at that point. Even twisters inside a dust storm, like it's remarkable. Electrified twisters. Exactly. Yeah. I think for me, it might be the swinging, like that bird's eye view, the aerial of the war boys and the metronome-like effect of them on both sides of the war rig mm -hmm. coming down. Cause you just realize like, oh my gosh, they have so many challenges to get through this Canyon. So I think just that look and what the, I said war boys, I mean the pole cats mm -hmm. represent insofar as the attacking capabilities that just visually it looks so good. So that's what I'm going to go with. Excellent. Now it's time for the. I need to take a shot moment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What is that for you? I'd said it earlier. It's the kid. Yeah, the, the stillbirth, stillbirth scene. sequence. You just can't do that. Mm -hmm. But they did and got away with it and didn't make me want to run out of the theater. Um, That's a testament there. It really is. Mm -hmm. You just, there's a lot of rules in the creation of film that I don't adhere to. But that's one that I do, and we've written plenty, and we never, ever mm -hmm. do the young in. You just can't do it. It's too hard, yeah. And then to do the young in from Splendid, because Splendid's literally her name fits her. Mm -hmm. They handle it in a way that is just not off-putting to where I want to go watch something else. So that's that's it for me. Excellent. How about you? It's the do for you. I don't know how yeah. he fits into the hierarchy of uh, like this war rig other than to be the hype man. But man, I want to have a shot with the do for you because him in his speaker setup and he's just playing too. And I love how the soundtrack, whenever the camera pans past him and it's doing its own thing, whenever it passed pants, it passed him electric guitars filled the rest of the soundtrack. So it's like alive with his music on top of it all. It's like a crazy drummer boy, right? The exactly. little drummer boy in the war brigade. Mm -hmm. It's great. And it's, it's so different. And you're like, why is this in the film? But you're like, I'm glad it's in the film. A close one I bet for both of us is the scales of justice armed with Uzis. As no, we're driving. That whole sequence is amazing. That one's a good one too. Who's the master distiller on this film? George Miller. This movie, at that point in his career, at that age, um, it's just, look, of the decade, and we've done best of the 20s, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. It's it's clearly decade best. Mm -hmm. I, I Obviously, I think everyone can probably see where the ratings are going on this. To handle this stylized piece in a way that's adapted from very common and organized and structured film genre and to do it in a way that unless you really think about it, you don't even know mm -hmm. just speaks to how brilliantly handled this is. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go with George Miller. I'm too. going Miller too. Can we give like a nod though to Tom Hardy as well? I want to give to Tom Hardy and Charlie there. Like I think he Miller was able to get great performances out of his leads. And I think they, they play off each other very well. Yeah. The, uh, emoting you know just kind of looks and you know the plot through each other and that that's hard to do too especially in this environment i can't imagine what it was like to film this film first of all no kidding but george miller in his late 60s maybe made the most insane action film i think i've ever seen in my entire life it's a perfect mix of practical and cgi and at the end of the day he tells a really simple story it's really just a chase to get the booty back like booty by like not ass but like but kind of in like, no, no, but kind of in a way, <laughs> in a weird way, right? The breeders. Yeah, exactly. To get that back. And that's the plot of the film. And it's, it, it's 
so and the world building he does in this fourth entry fourth entries in a franchise shouldn't be this good no by like just how the way franchises tend to go and get exhausted by doing the same thing mm-hmm. uh that year at the Academy Awards, Alejandro Gonzalez Inarritu won for The Revenant, and that's a very beautiful film. And that film is what it is. No way, I that's ever George. Watch it again. That's George Miller's award, hands down. Not even an argument. Mm-hmm. So I think time now more than ever. Let's go ahead and rate Mad Max Fury Road. We have Rock Gut, Well Call, Single Barrel, and Top Shelf. Matt, I'll let you go first today. Top Shelf, top 10 of the decade. There's not a bad moment. It's infinitely watchable. You can break it down metaphorically. It's smart. You can just watch and enjoy it. You can eat popcorn. You can discuss. Mm -hmm. There's plenty of interesting things to look at. Every time you watch this movie, you'll pick up some visual element that you didn't get prior. And I'm not one that likes lipstick on a pig. Mm -hmm. You better have one hell of a pig. And this is Charlotte and Charlotte's web pig. (laughs) This is a really, this is some pig. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a masterpiece. It's Mm -hmm. the bet. Like you said, fourth entries are usually like a little eyebrow raising and pretty cringeworthy. I can't can't believe we're this far. (laughs) And this one is so much better than either of the first three. It's like, that's, you know, some JV high school team compared to like, I don't know, like the best NBA, like the bull, like Jordan's bulls. Yeah. It's just that much better. It kind of is really. It's a masterpiece. This is arguably Mm -hmm. if we were to do top 20 of all time, this probably would be in my top 20 of all time. It's, I think it deserves to be top shelf plus, plus, plus it's right next to Pappy Van Winkle. It's way up there. It's a good place for it. Okay. I'm going, I'm going the same. I met, I remember like, when you hear the idea of, oh, Miller's going to make a fourth Mad Max, you're kind of like, yeah, I guess. Like, Thunderdome was like mid-80s. I guess I want another Mad Max. You don't know. You didn't want it, and you didn't think you needed it. I remember where I was. We were writing one night, and I think they were at Comic-Con that year, and there was a trailer that they put out, and I, I played it for us. And you could just tell in the trailer, and this film has three amazing trailers that just say this movie's not messing around and we watched it that night, and, I, and that was like July of 2014. Mm-hmm. We had a whole year to, to wait. It oh, looked, was that like Memorial Day? Yeah. It looked amazing in the trailer, and I was like, this is something I think we might want to pay attention to because when you go see it, and man, it's hard-hitting in all the best ways. Uh, Tom Hardy's brilliant. Charlie Theron's amazing as these characters. They represent so much. Miller's expert direction, the cinematography, the music. Yeah, top shelf. You're like you're going to be hard pressed to find an action film that's maybe staged and made as better as this film. You hate the bad guys that die and feel good when they die in the film with very little screen time, and you feel bad for the good guys that die for the same result with very little screen time. You feel for Splendid when she gets trucked. It's you care. Mm-hmm. How do you care? Excellent. Yeah. Let's go ahead and end this episode with the nightcap. And since this film is essentially one big chase sequence, like from like minute 20 to like minute hour and like 50 minutes, what's your favorite chase sequence on film, whether by foot, by train, by uh, plane, however you see it, what other film has done a sequence expertly like this film has done? The ones that come to mind first, there's two of them, and they're both in the same film, if you can believe this. Ooh. 
It's the French Connection. Mm. <laughs> so the car chase and the French Connection, the car chasing the train. Yeah, that's the one that I'm going to say is the one. Yeah, but the other one that is the most non like movement chase sequence is Doyle chasing oh, the French guy on and off the train. Fernando Ray. There you go. Mm-hmm. That bit on and off playing cat and mouse on and off the train. That is, and they basically go nowhere except in and out of doors. Yeah. So good. Both in the same film. And as he gets on the train, he just weighs bye-bye. Yeah. I mean, there's one in Bullet from Steve McQueen that's close, but it's it's those two, and I'm going to do the car chase in French Connection as number one. We might want to think about doing that film here pretty soon. Uh, I remember when we watched that film in your class, and the maybe end- that's a director cask. Yeah, Because guess what else is in there? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. That film just ends so abruptly mm-hmm. in kind of a maybe unsatisfying way. And French Connection 2 is a pile of shit. Yep, <laughs> it is. But, oh my, what the things that happen in there are so important to film history as character building. It's a film that won Best Picture at the Academy Awards. Like, it's 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 big time. Yep. And I think a very uh, rewatchable film. Yep. For my chase sequence... There's there's two I could I could pick from, and I think I've mentioned this maybe a whole year ago on the podcast when we talked about Raiders of the Lost Ark. But it's the desert chase sequence of Indian horse to get into the to get into the van uh, that's carrying the ark, and whether he's drug under it, which I replicated as a child. <laughs> yep. we talked about that. I think that's very well done, and I think also I thought about the French Connection. That that's excellent. Also thought about too in, in Nolan's in Dark Knight with the the convoy chase with Dent in the armored vehicle. That's the, a good one. The Joker in the semi and flipping mm-hmm. the semi. I th- Batman and the Batpaw. That's another well done uh, sequence. You know, I, I like you know when stunt work can be coordinated and there's very little CGI in both those sequences. Those are actual people driving cars and staging stuff on location. To me, that's filmmaking. That's that's how it should be and complemented with CGI when necessary, like in Fury Road. You know, the other one that I think we would be a little remiss not to mention is that Schwarzenegger and Texas as the sheriff film. What the hell's the name of that film? The Jim? Last Stand? Because we know the guy that did the cornfield chase in mm-hmm. that. We mentioned him already. His name's Kurt. Mm-hmm. And they shot that at like, what do you say, seven or eight miles an hour? Mm-hmm. But it is so cool through the corn um, and then the other one too that I have to mention and I considered, I don't know if you would call this a chase sequence as much as it would be an maybe an attack sequence, but Cary Grant and the crop duster in North by Northwest is pretty damn good too. <laughs> that is, is that a, ch- I mean, yeah, why not? Kind of chase for your life. Yeah. Yeah. Being chased by a plane. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. It's There's a whole Friedkin cast. that's just waiting for us, dude. Like it's just, as we mentioned, like, French Connection and The Exorcist and Sorcerer. Mm-hmm. It's just waiting for us to green light. Well, hey, since we can't go to the theater and watch movies, maybe it's sooner rather than later. Indeed. Excellent. Well, Matt, this has been a lot of fun. It sure has. So cheers. We hope you like this episode. Hit us up on any of the social media platforms. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, Stitcher. You can you download apps for those. Download your stuff. Listen to on a desktop. Listen at home now since you're essentially stuck at the home. You're going to have some time. You'll have some time to burn through our entire back catalog. So if post-apocalyptic is too grim for you right now, we got slashers. We got um, 
romantic comedies. We got superheroes. We got summer blockbusters. We got Tarantino. We got Stephen King. We got Star Wars. We got a little everything for everybody in there. Maybe this week off, Mike, me and Jesse will come up with the shot this week to keep you guys entertained midweek, too, with as much time as you may have on your hands. Excellent. Maybe, yeah, we'll see. We'll talk about that. Excellent. Well, cheers, Matt. Cheers, Jesse. Cheers. I'm going to try to go to Home Depot. Hopefully, they haven't gotten rid of all of the silver spray paint because if we're going down, I'm spray painting my face and I'm going down like a war boy. With the process of terrible health that's going on right now, if I see you on the other side, Jesse, I hope it's in Valhalla. Valhalla. Mediocre. (laughs) Excellent. We'll see you all next week. Have a great week, everybody. We'll see you in the dark. Maybe literally. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for listening to Rye Smile Films. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to stay in the know for future episodes. And be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, Stitcher. Tune in and leave us a comment at Productions at gmail.com. Mad Max Fury Road is property of Warner Brothers Pictures, Village Roadshow Pictures, Kennedy Miller Mitchell, and Roadshow Films. And no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, Cheers. Max. My name is Max. <laughs>